thank you guys so much for doing this. We're just so excited to um, hear more about the, the Loop story and some of our favorites so far have been related to you guys' awesome work. Wanted to just start off with a little bit of introductions and maybe you each want to give us who you are and, and then we can talk a little bit about Luke's and what Luke's is. My name is Ben Conniff. I'm a co-founder and the chief innovation officer at Luke's. So I started the company with Luke back in 2009 when we both lived in New York City and we were just a single little restaurant uh, that was connected through Luke's family up to the main lobster fishery. Um, and now we've grown considerably as you'll hear, but my role has shifted a ton over the years. Uh, and these days, as Chief Innovation Officer, I focus a lot on our environmental and social sustainability work, as well as brand development, product development, and generally trying to look towards the future and make sure that we're out ahead of all the issues and opportunities to come. My name is Luke Holden. I'm the founder and CEO of Luke's Lobster. I'm actually a third generation lobsterman, and my father was the very first licensed lobster processor in the state of Maine. So I grew up on the back of boats. Uh, I built a boat in high school and hand hauled the 150 lobster traps with my youngest brother being my sternman. I was in and out of uh, my dad's production businesses, in and out of his lobster pounds and lobster wharfs and lobster and Working waterfront are very much a part of my upbringing and who I am. And uh, Luke's Lobster, uh, when when we started back in in 2009, was really an opportunity to reconnect with those roots and reconnect with an industry that very passionate about and feel very privileged to be a, a leader of of the main lobster industry and in a business that's ultimately uh, working very smartly to create value for the fishery and and uh, all of its stakeholders. Awesome. I want to stick with the, the industry for a second, because I read that last year, the main lobster industry skyrocketed from around 300 some million to over 725 million. And I'm curious, Luke, especially when you think about that relative to your memories of, you know, being out there with your dad, your father obviously helped establish this incredible industry in the state. And, and now it's this, you know, huge, important industry. Can you reflect a little bit on that? Talk about how it feels to be the next generation, the third generation, not just carrying the torch, but <laughs> growing a giant flame, you know, giant fire for this industry. I feel very, again, I'll use the word privilege to have been part of the industry for, for the last 13 years and in our, our capacity of starting, running, growing, and leading Luke's Flopster. Back in 2009, the boat price to fishermen was somewhere between two and three dollars per pound for a live lobster. And the state was probably harvesting somewhere around 90 to 100 million pounds, 90 to 100 million pounds of, of live lobster a year. You look at 2021 and the average boat price was around seven dollars to 750 a pound. And we harvested about 120 million pounds of, of live lobster. So we've increased supply and we've dramatically grown demand in a way that has more than tripled the price to the fishing communities. And the reason that that is so significant is when you look up and down the, the coast of Maine, a lot of the economic engine that drives 
what makes Maine very special, these, these quintessential coastal communities are the fishing communities. It's, there's such a multiplier on when a fisherman gets paid X, his or her help gets paid a proportion of that value. And then the whole industry that supports those fishing communities, whether it's those working building or working on boats or selling fuel or buying inventory, selling baits, the insurance industry, then next level, all of the support that goes into producing um, and processing lobster, all the wages, um, all of the, the build of materials that go into producing all those products. It is just such a huge multiplier. So when, when you can go into an industry and you can really build value at the vessel level, it has a it has a multiplying level that takes that you know, seven hundred million dollar vessel value and turns it into a multi billion dollar industry for the state of Maine. The way that it just reverberates throughout the entire range of stakeholders in the Maine lobster industry. I'm curious, just on a personal level, if you think about kind of the memories of sitting on the boat, could you ever have imagined that the industry would be this big and that be innovating with such an important company in the industry? I certainly reminisce about the wonderful upbringing that I had, and I get to kind of relive it. I've got uh, two little girls now with a third child on the way, and we very much, they both, the two and three-year-old go out lobstering with me now. I, I love commercial bluefin tuna fishing. So whenever I get a tuna, we call it mom and and have the kids show up to to see the fish and I get to talk about the quality of the fish with them and, and have them feel and see my excitement for, for all things working waterfront. So that's a kind of a very neat heritage role of the industry that I get to pass on. And, you know, my dad's sitting there at the top of the hoist, lifting up the, the bucket of lobsters and putting a pail of cookies down for my daughter um, for, for payment, or he's the one lifting the tuna up and giving me a that a boy when uh, we've been out there for a couple of days trying to trying to catch one of these. So the the heritage side of it is exceptionally meaningful and and, it, and that extends much beyond you know my family. It's a in so many ways the fishermen are the original uh, the OG sustainability officers, the, you know, the, the practices that have been in place since the turn of the century to protect female lobsters, baby lobsters, oversized lobsters, uh, were effectively out there feeding and growing the biomass um, by, by identifying uh, what part of the stock really needs to be protected. And and it's all with the ambition of just leaving the ocean and the biomass a little bit better than we found it. And so this concept of heritage is felt in all of these fishing communities that I'm talking about. And that's just such a neat part of the DNA of this um, fishery. When Luke says turn of the century, he's not talking about 2000 when it was becoming cool. He's talking about 1900. <laughs> Our rules and regulations around sustainability truly have been in place since the late 1800s, which is just, which is just really cool. And it just, all of those generations have just passed on that kind of wealth of uh, not only the wealth of knowledge, but just just that general expectation that you, you leave things better than you found them. That is that is in in so many ways what what defines the main lobster industry. That's awesome. We'll come back to a little bit more on sustainability. I'm curious now. Ben, to get a little bit of your history. What, what was the first job you ever had? The first job I had? 
ties right back to the question you asked me at the start about what I had for breakfast. It was in a donut shop. I, uh, I spent seven summers, starting when I was 14, uh, pumping the jelly and putting the frosting on and then cranking up these old school pickup windows at this old uh, donut shack uh, near the beach where I grew up. And uh, yeah, that's where, I, that's where I learned my unique brand of hospitality as well as a, a very specific culinary skill. And did you go straight into food as a, as a food writer right out of college? Uh, I didn't quite go directly into food out of college. I took, uh, I took two different internships. One was at uh, WNYC and the other was at Playboy. So somewhat uh, different ends of the media spectrum, but I got a lot of experience doing a lot of different types of journalism there. Uh, and it was after those two internships that I decided that I wanted to focus on food. I spent a little while in food journalism and then decided I would cut the journalism part out and just focus on the food. Give up what many consider, I think, the, their dream job. <laughs> Luke, a little bit back to you, same kind of timeline question. I know that we both shared a similar first job out of college working in finance. I'm curious how you ended up deciding to go into finance straight out of college. When I was a sophomore in college, so obviously I came from a, a, a working family. My mother was a special ed teacher, and my father was a, a bootstrap entrepreneur. And it was very important to my parents and, and, and ultimately me that, that I went to college and that I was a, a good role model for my two younger brothers. And what success did not look like was going to Georgetown, taking a bunch of student debt, and being a lobsterman during the summer. Like that's what I was doing, that's what I wanted to do. But my parents kind of looked at me very squarely and said, if you think we're going to take a portion of this debt and allow you to take a portion of this debt and just have you continue to be a, a lobsterman when we could teach you how to do that, you're out of your mind. You know, we, we won't support that bill. So it was, this summer of my sophomore year that I, they, that I started a little bit of double dipping where I, I got a little bit of ocean time, a little bit of fishing time, but I started an, an internship working at UBS Financial Services and, and started developed an interest in, in finance. I was studying at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown and was developing uh, uh, an interest and concentration in two different majors, both uh, finance and new small business management. And so finance was something that I had gained some confidence around. And my junior year, I did another internship at, at UBS and um, found similar success and confidence in, in that um, internship. And I graduated in, in 2007 and it was just a very easy time with the economic cycle to get a, a pretty good job as an investment banker in New York City. And so the concept of moving to New York City and and working a bunch and making a bunch of money and and just sort of punting on what what I want to be when I when I grow up was a pretty easy decision to make. You know, I I had had some debt I needed to pay off. 
had zero obligations as a you know 22 year old moving to the city and so i i just i gave investment banking a shot and i i wound up on a great team and honestly i i liked the job um and i was fine at performing the job but it was really two three years into it that i realized that i was just sort of stuck in a in a pattern of work that really didn't drive a lot of passion it didn't it really didn't drive a lot of excitement for or enthusiasm for you know, for how I was going to take this job and um, turn it into a lifestyle. And that for me was something that, you know, I grew up with. I, I, I my mother loved being a teacher and um, it was part of who she was. So it was part of who she surrounded herself with. And my, you know, my father, he works uh, just like all small business leaders do. We, we work all the time, but if you love it, doesn't really feel like work. It's just, it's part of the lifestyle that you, that you choose and investment banking felt like work. And, you know, Luke's is stressful at times, but it never really feels like work. It's funny. My mother made me promise when I, when I took on student debt that I would never follow in her footsteps in marketing. So that's the same, same threat. We're not sending you to college on the East coast for you to come home and just work on advertising like your mother does. <laughs> But it sounds like you had a little bit more of a healthy relationship with banking. I was, I, I'm the kind of guy that came out with all sorts of horror stories and is like, get me out of here. I got no more Pellegrino bottles being thrown at my face, please. Um, <laughs> None of that stuff. It was, uh, they buried me, you know, and they, they punished me like first day of opening Luke's. They, they knew this was a little a side hustle. I, I went all in and disclosed that uh, I was putting some money and effort into this and, you know, they made sure that I was in early that day on opening day. So I missed every bit of opening day. You know, there, there was like the punishment of, uh, of being a first year analyst, but the, the leaders of that bank were all, they were just, they were kind men and women, family oriented. And when it was time to work, they, they certainly were not shy about delegating to the analyst, but, but they always treated me very fairly and, and I learned a lot. So I was, I'll be told I was grateful for that that life uh, opportunity. Ben, you mentioned you, know, you went food writing this kind of same stage to just food. What triggered that? What was kind of the the, the moment or the story where where you just said, I don't, I don't, the writing part's just not for me or a series of moments that catalyzed you to, to make a change? There was one moment, a couple different reasons tied to that moment, but it was when I had, I learned about a group of historic schooners in Maine, actually, that, that go out of Rock, Rockland, Maine and Camden. Um, and they uh, they basically take tours out on Penobscot Bay, but their galley kitchens are all historic. So ice in the ice box, not electric, wood wood fired ovens, and they do everything the way these old fishing schooners would have done back in the in the early 1900s. So I pitched a publication to write an article about it. I came up, spent four days on this boat, just in. Penobscot Bay is probably the most beautiful place on the planet. Getting out on the water, eating amazing seafood from Maine, doing a lobster bake. And I thought, yeah, this is fun to be able to write about this stuff. But how much more fun would it be to be the cook down in the kitchen or to be involved in in this food industry in a more meaningful way? So really sparked the love of Maine, the love of the kitchen, the love of the food. And then on top of that, when the publication wouldn't pay my travel expenses and wouldn't wouldn't even cut me a check for the story until they ran it a year later, I thought, eh, this isn't exactly a sustainable career either. So might as well take my chances and 
throw my hat in the ring and, and go hunting on Craigslist for a food industry job. And as luck would have it, just shortly thereafter, I found somebody from Maine looking to start a Maine-oriented restaurant company, and it was clearly fate for me. I mean, I think I love the the story of of how you two connected. For those that haven't heard it, do you want to give a little more detail? Sure. So you know, in that in that moment, I got back from that trip to uh, to Maine in June, and I jumped on Craigslist, and I was looking for any foot in the door in the food industry I could find. I was applying to dishwasher jobs and counter service jobs and really anything out there. And I, I wasn't getting a lot of bites. It wasn't exactly the job market that it is today for people who wanted to work in restaurants. So I was getting frustrated, but I was still looking. And then, you know, I found this post on Craigslist saying, you know, I, I have this great idea for a business, but, uh, but I, I need some pretty undefined level of help to get it going. And I thought, I don't know, I couldn't couldn't get a response as a dishwasher. Am I going to get a response from somebody looking for a business partner? But I figured it was worth a shot and you know, sent in the email. And I think within a day, I'd heard back. And that was super exciting. Uh, I'll let Luke kind of describe his thought process in putting it on Craigslist in the first place. seemed like a pretty safe place to... Uh to just dip my toes in the water and look for a, a, a co-founder. But I, I, yeah, I just, as Ben sort of described, they just wrote a post that said a little bit about me and my, and my family and connection to the resource and a little bit about uh, what I was trying to achieve and a whole lot of nothing about what the specifics were. I was, was pretty descriptive that I really wasn't sure what the day today was going to look like. And I didn't really know what the business was going to look like. I just kind of knew that I wanted to serve the, the best damn quality lobster roll that New York City had ever seen. I wanted to do it at the best price possible. And, and I wanted to do it in a format that treated people the way you'd like to be treated. And that was sort of the underpinning that I think uh, attracted Ben. And uh, it was amazing. I mean, it was a good time to hire. The summer of 2009 was a, was a pretty repressed point in the, in the economic cycle, very different than, uh, than, than when they were, banks were open-minded to hiring someone like me to be a, a banker in 2007. But I, I got north of 500 applicants and it was uh, a wide array of different types of candidates. And Ben's application, beyond the fact that he had clear skills in storytelling, a clear understanding of, of like how, it's almost like he understood how I, how I thought because he brought together um, in just a short meeting when we, when we synced up, he kind of brought together a lot of the the different unorganized thoughts in my head into a cohesive story and plan. But uh, one thing I did was I, I, I said, uh, after the first date, this tells you a little bit about who I am, my personality. I, I said, all right, we're, we're putting you on a plane and we're flying you up to meet my dad and my uncle. That's going to be your, uh, it's going to be the second date. And we're going to see what they think and see what you think. You know, this is a, this is a, a two-sided uh, interview, and I want to make sure that you know what you're getting into, and we know what 
what we're getting into. And, you know, the reports back from Maine, because I, I couldn't go, I sent Ben alone, I had to work, I couldn't get off the desk. The, the reports back from Maine were he's, well, he's clearly a lot brighter than you are. So you found a, you found a partner that's brighter than you are. Good job there. And it also just feels like he's a very sincere, honest, and trustworthy person. And when you're starting a business and not part of the day-to-day, and you're starting a business that is in the restaurant business, which is kind of, you know, we don't certainly think of ourselves as a restaurant business back in 2009 or, or today, but certainly today. there's always these like horror stories of mistrust and bad management. And so certainly those core values in Ben of, of just, of just coming across as a very genuine, trustworthy, honest person, they just sort of qualified him for the position right out of the gate. Didn't matter that he had the only hospitality experience he had was, was, was jam and jam and donuts and didn't matter that uh, he didn't have any, you know, real business uh, leadership experience none of that stuff was intimidating it was just like let's let's get the let's make sure we find someone who's generally interested and has a work ethic um, which we developed in ben ben didn't ben didn't come shovel ready with a work ethic that that was uh i, I came over that came over time and you know, amazing how once he was passionate about something the work ethic came but ben was always uh honest as the day is long ben you get off the plane in, in may and, and what are you thinking you know, I didn't know what to expect. I had uh, I'd taken odd jobs here and there with folks in the finance industry who had side dreams. Previously, they'd mostly been nuts, uh, <laughs> and they hadn't been great experiences. But you know, at the time, I was uh, I was a yes guy. As Luke said, I was I was a forty hour guy, so I, I'd say yes to any job as long as it was a forty hour a week job. And then suddenly I got, I got up there in Maine and I saw, you know, this isn't somebody with some fly-by-night plan that they developed from throwing spaghetti at the wall uh, when they were bored at the office. This is, you know, generations of heritage. This is just an extremely involved industry that's grounded in this processing business that's that's been developed over decades. And, you know, it just sort of all the things that Luke had said in the first 90 minutes that we met uh, really came to life, you know, seeing the processing facility and getting to know the family. It was really exciting. It was really affirming. You know, it went from being like, oh, this will be, you know, a way to pay my rent uh, for as long as we can stick it out to, wow, this idea actually really has legs and it's something that I can be passionate about and just left Maine uh, with the desire to hit the ground running and and just get this thing. I mean, basically that was late August and we discussed an ambition to have this thing open by October 1st and we hadn't signed a lease yet. So there was really no option other than to hit the ground running and running very fast. And I went from being a 40 hour a week guy to a 110, 120 hour a week guy pretty much overnight. The startup world is notorious for, for long hours and for as you both kind of articulated, nondescript or undefined needs and roles. And uh, especially, I think, in the early days, they're exciting, but they're also oftentimes precarious in particular. I can't imagine getting from zero to 60 in the amount of time you guys got that restaurant up and running. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that. I mean, you know, sometimes I, I know I look back at early failures in, in 
my first startup and or struggles and think that some of them probably spurred the solutions, some innovative solutions to, and problem solving skills that now allow me to succeed. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, when you were, when you think about those early days, limited funds, in, incredible pressure to get something done super fast, it must have taken a lot. Curious if there are any kind of stories around how you pulled off the impossible in such a short period of time and, and what kind of you think uh, empowered you or um, gave you the, the skills or tools to do that? From my perspective, I think what allowed us to get there was almost entirely attitude. It was just the confidence that given enough time, enough effort, and enough creative thinking, there was not a problem that we wouldn't be able to overcome. And in the end, you know, overcome in some ways meant compromise. You know, was was this place the picture of perfection when we opened it October 1st? Absolutely not. So I think it was an ability to, you know, go over, around, and through on so many problems and also to say, like, this is our version of a minimum viable product. <laughs> it's, you know, we, speaking in more like Silicon Valley terms that, that I didn't understand then and still don't really understand now. It was like we had a burn rate. It was pretty much up October 1st, and we needed to have something where we could open the doors and, and start getting people in right away. And the thing that we, the thing we couldn't compromise was, you know, the quality, the sustainability, the authenticity of the product. And we knew that other pieces could follow if we could just successfully execute on our number one promise, which is have to, to be able to serve the best damn lobster roll and, and help people come in and, and be happy and feel like they'd taken a trip to Maine. Luke, what about from your perspective, that, that kind of the first opening day on October 1st or the few weeks before... Um, when things might have seemed precarious. Tell us what was going through your mind. Tell us, you know, the stories that stand out to you about that time. It was a wild ride. I do want to just bring it back to 13 years later. A lot of things haven't changed. And, and that's partly what I love about this team and this business. October 1st, we're trying to get the plumber to finish piping in the three basin sink. And uh, his name's Sam. I remember this just because of what a challenging human being this guy was. Sam would roll up in his black Escalade. He'd basically jump out, point a finger, grunt something, and then jump back in, in, in the black Escalade. And then now return my phone call for, you know, four or five days. And we're on a 30 day timeline to get this job done. Plumbing, was the second biggest part of the $30,000 budget that we had, only second to uh, to electricity. We upgraded the electricity service in that space from 25 amps to 50 amps. I mean, 50 amps to run a restaurant is, is almost no power, but that was as much as we could afford. A uh, couple days before opening, then realized that that we needed a, a, a food handler's license. Somebody had to have a food handler's license in order to safely serve food, you know, these, these little things. And, and so I think he stayed up all night and figured out how to cram study and take a test the next day so that he could in the Bronx, so he get his food handler's license. The day before opening up, he texts and says, hey, the bank counts a little light and they need to go down to Bowery just to get a trash can. And it was like, 
bank accounts light and it's not getting any heavier. So tie a trash can off the off the a trash bag off the corner of the fridge or corner of the door because there's just there's no way another fifty bucks is coming for a trash can right now, and and that was not none of that stuff was all they were were just opportunities to solve. It wasn't a well we don't have a trash can or we don't have a reasonable plumber or we don't have enough power so we can't can't plug this in it was okay well this is what we do have and let's just make it work and in so many ways that defines a lot of the success that luke's lobster is today i mean we we're a completely vertically integrated business uh, where we're we, we've either got partnerships with cooperatives of fishermen or investment in wharfs we sell fuel to fishermen we source bait from all over the world, inventory it during off-season times when the cost is low so we can level load costs for fishermen. We're one of the largest lobster buyers on the East Coast, one of the largest lobster processors. We've got restaurants domestically that we own, restaurants internationally that we license. We CPG products. We, a couple teammates stood up an online market uh, e-commerce business and in the height of the pandemic so that we could sell inventory and get cash back into the business. And we'll talk a lot more about this stuff, but like we've done all of this stuff on a shoestring budget and we've done it in ways that where you look at our, you look at challenges as opportunities and, and just like great people and great teams figure out how to just solve those things. And they don't focus on excuses or, or that concept of like, of, Oh, I can't do it because I don't have resources. It's like, that's just a, I don't want to be a motivational speaker, but it's like, it's just a mindset. Like there's a, there's almost always a solution for a perceived problem. And over the last 13 years, like this team has just been very, very good at looking at opportunities and figuring out how to solve them instead of like saying that's just something we can't do or, or shouldn't do. And in a lot of ways, like we still haven't grown up. We should probably say no to a lot of things that we should do. We should be more focused, but that's just not really who we are. And it's not, not some of the, it's not, not doesn't drive a lot of the, you know, we have a lot of fun around here too. I want to take some time to talk a little bit about your perspective towards, towards the world, the earth, uh, sustainability, I know is an important value. And obviously you went through the fishermen or the original chief sustainability officers. I think that's an amazing quote. But I'm also curious if you would extend that a little bit and talk about how you see the relationship between the ocean, marine conservation, and the kind of the, the broader global needs for a sustainable future. You know, though I'm though I'm not a Mainer, I'm I'm also lucky to have grown up on the water. And I think having done that, both of us have a sense of the importance that that it has for really the entire world. And that's from a from a human perspective to our economy, to our ability to continue to eat as the population grows, and, and from an environmental perspective as well. And as as Luke said, it's it's the folks that have the most direct exposure to the ocean who in a lot of ways see that first. They're also the canaries in the coal mine for issues that are that are coming to our oceans and how those issues are going to reverberate through really the entire global population. So, you know, Maine lobstermen are out there. They're seeing the effects of global warming every day. They're seeing the changing distribution of lobster territory. They're seeing the 
changing timing of the lobster molting process. They're seeing species in the Gulf of Maine that were never there before, squid and, and black sea bass and, you know, things that are ultimately predators to the species that fishermen in the Gulf of Maine are used to catching. So having that connection to folks who are out there, who are observing these changes, gives you a real perspective on, on sort of where things are going with climate change. But, you know, we also know with the world's growing population, the ocean is where people are going to be looking more and more to, to feed people. So in that sense, we have a huge responsibility to be stewards of the ocean, uh, to be stewards of the, of the natural resources that we've been able to benefit from, you know, like lobster, but to be creative, to be forward thinking, and to do everything we can to, to preserve ecosystems and to adapt as, as changes happen around us. So, you know, I, I think what's, what's an amazing thing about Maine fishermen, about Mainers in general, is that they have that, that same attitude that Luke was talking about that we have with the business. It's, you know, it's not about thinking about what we, what we can't do, what we don't have the resources to do, or what's not going to work. It's about being resourceful, being adaptable, looking at what we do have, and solving problems so that we are leaving this ocean, our little piece of it, better than we found it. And if we can do that in one patch of the Gulf of Maine, you know, then maybe we can scale that. Maybe we can share things that we've learned to the rest of the Gulf of Maine, to the rest of the Atlantic coast, uh, to the rest of the marine economy around the country, around the world, because, you know, races against climate change, against ecosystem change, those are not going to be won by, by one group alone. They're going to be won or lost by all of us together because we're all going to feel the effects if we don't figure out the answers to some of these problems. So I think working together as, as mission-driven companies and stakeholders in the oceans is really critical and something that we're committed to. A couple of things that, that I believe to be true. Climate change is real. Decarbonization work needs to be accelerated. Nobody owns the ocean. And I think that that's something that's important to, to to gain consensus around. And change is important in part of every great business and every great industry. But in order for effective change management to happen, all stakeholders need to be brought to the table to make the best decision possible. And my limited experience in this industry is that Often those most passionate about change have no idea how to impactfully make change happen. And so a place where I think Luke's has got a great opportunity to help set the table um, and break bread and bring all um, parties together is, is just making sure that in a world where change, in a, in a business and in an industry where, where, where change is, is, is going to happen, the, the voices of fishermen need to be heard they need to be understood they need to be they they need to be incorporated in change and government needs to be a better partner in in listening and the environmental community needs to be a better partner in listening and and the fishing community needs to be a better partner in listening it's just it's amazing how when uh change comes about 
those those three groups are often adversaries when I think if someone was just hit the pause button and kind of look forward 10 years or 50 years and and say what does success look like they'd all say that this is what success looks like and they just they don't stop long enough to listen to put a plan together in order to to all get on the right side of the right side of the line and all put the same jersey on and all play for the same team and and so, uh, in, a, in a lot of ways, I think Luke's has a, an interesting opportunity to, to be a leader in that way because we've got trust of a lot of those stakeholders and great relationships with a lot of those stakeholders. And there's no ego here. It's just a, an effort to make sure that we all of those voices get heard so that change management happens as effectively as possible. As, as a business that is that has this perspective, you know, right now, ESG is all the rage in the financial community. I will not ask you guys if you want to go public, but I am very curious how you think about the corporation's role in addressing big challenges and opportunities, big changes, as you say, Luke. You know, how can corporations, corporate America, the private sector, the financial sector, how should they be thinking about engaging in change? I think it's a great question, Connor, and I, I probably have more questions about it than I than I do answers. I don't necessarily love the path that we're heading down right now where big corporations get the opportunity to buy carbon offset credits, and that in, in effect makes them a, a greener organization. In a lot of ways, I think that that was probably perfectly well-intentioned, but now is um, ultimately just a business that is that is perpetuating the problem. As younger consumers become a larger portion of, of overall demand, and I say younger consumers because it just seems like the millennials and Gen Zs seem to be more interested and more devoted towards uh, everything that e- ESG ultimately addresses, I, I think there will be a more common measuring stick that corporate America will get evaluated against that will continue to encourage businesses to make investments that ultimately reduce our dependency on on activities that create efforts that, that create carbon and 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 ultimately push more businesses to to looking at making decisions that balance purpose and 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 profit and I I, I think in a lot of ways, it's it's the employees and, and the consumers that ultimately will make these demands that will then cause, that will cause industry to shift. It's important that businesses in corporate America are taking on some of this mantle, because I think our political system is just set up to give a lot of whiplash and to make it very difficult to make sustainable change at that level. But when businesses and consumers care about something and demand that change happen in a productive way that can be easier to sustain. That said, I do think that a lot of ESG programs look at the numbers and try to check boxes. And a lot of times, like carbon offsets as the example, it's a lot easier for somebody to write a check to kind of erase in theory, you know, the the things they do that are harmful by you know protecting a rainforest somewhere that they've never seen before but what really needs to happen is not just writing checks but actually looking at your own footprint 
looking at your own supply chain, looking at your own emissions, and figuring out how to proactively reduce those. And I think the evolution that I would like to see is for people to worry less about the ability to make what can sometimes be a hollow declaration of carbon neutrality because they've written those big checks and focus more on actually looking in the mirror, digging deep on everything that goes into making the products that they sell and figuring out how to engage those stakeholders all the way back up their supply chain and work together as a team to mitigate the the impact that, that they're having on the planet. And I think as people are willing to do that, to get away from just pure optics and to kind of roll up their sleeves and do the work, that is where companies and, and corporate America will be able to achieve the, the greatest positive outcomes. So the, the business is around 10 years old, three years ago, and, and dramatic change hits the world uh, in the pandemic. The company and you both have been open about the challenges and the layoffs and how painful that was. I'm curious, as you've reflected, as we've all reflected, I think, over the last couple of years, what did that experience teach you as a company or, or about yourself? And you know, what would you want others to learn from that? I think for me, the challenges of the pandemic reminded me how resourceful we can be as a team. It reminded me that we can do more with less by really digging deep, by tapping in our resources of energy, of creativity, and and really by leaning on one another, not just to get the job done, but for the emotional support that we all needed to give to one another to get through that time. The other takeaway that, that I got from that experience was just that it could have been an excuse to not move forward on the impact work that we'd committed to as a company to say, we just, you know, we don't have the resources anymore. We can't prioritize that. We have to prioritize our survival. And to see that doing impact work had become such a part of our DNA that to let go of it would have probably cost us our survival. It was that important to us that we were able to not only continue, but expand that impact work when the business really felt in the line of fire. That was really heartening to me. And it helped me realize that, you know, what, what motivates us as a company is way more than, than financial outcomes. It's the positive stakeholder outcomes for everyone up and down our supply chain and for our environment and and to know that that was what we were getting up every day to fight for was super motivating and, and remains so even now that the worst of the pandemic is hopefully past us. I think what the pandemic brought back to life for me in a, in a very real way is just how meaningful the people are, whether it was uh, the connection that we had with uh, or, or do have with our fishing community and how we had to ultimately uh, show up to work because if we didn't, the fishing community didn't have a market for their products and and that would just have a, an amazing um, reverberation throughout the coast of Maine. The people at Luke's that 
in some cases are family um, and in some cases are not technically family, but we treat each other like family. The way that people just showed up for people is just something that it, it's it's not like that was lost on me before the pandemic, but but certainly during the height of it, it was just a uh, it was reaffirmation of of just how significant the people are in this business, and in this industry, and how meaningful that is to me, and and as centering it is for why I choose to do what we're doing. Those are both um, really exceptional perspectives. Um, thank you for sharing those. So. What does Luke's up to today? What are you most excited about? Where are you? What are you focused on? Yeah, what 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 gets you guys jamming in the morning these days? What's really exciting about Luke's right now is just we're getting back to to growing our core business. So we're we've, we're signing leases and opening new restaurants instead of closing restaurants or continuing to make lease renegotiations with landlords. We're we're getting back to growth in that part of our business. And so that's really exciting. Uh, the team that has really the part of, of the Luke's team that is really kind of hunkered down to live to see another day, so to speak, is, is now getting a chance to reinvest in the business and, and, and grow and add new locations. So I'm super excited about that. The big Canadian lobster season um, is right around the corner. And that's it's it's always fun for me to to get the production business back uh, going full tilt at uh, the beginning of every May. Um, it is kind of a kickoff moment for the big the big season to come. So we're preparing for that, uh, a lot of hiring and training and, and in organizing POs for customers and um, trying to figure out which products we're gonna produce beyond the, the meat that we produce just for, for our own shacks. So I love that this time of year in particular and you know, t- toss it to Ben to um, talk a little bit more about some of the really fun stuff that's happening just beyond uh, uh, what happens inside our four walls, so to speak. I think as we get back to opening new restaurants, you know, we were as shaken as everyone by the pandemic. And I think we are totally committed to things not going back to the way they were, not going back to normal, but doing things better this time around. So that extends into decarbonization efforts. You know, as we open these new shacks, we have you know, energy efficiency guides that are you know, charting our way to the, uh, the equipment that we use and the building methods we use. Uh, we're putting renewable energy into each one of these new shacks. And then we're going back up the supply chain. We're working with fishermen on energy efficiency measures at their wharves, on trialing biodiesel in place of traditional diesel, on getting solar panels on their roofs, and really looking at how, as this company goes from retracting to expanding, we're doing so in a much more sustainable way. On the people side, you know, we're, we're committed to being a better employer than we've ever been. We're committed to a bunch of diversity and inclusion initiatives. We're prioritizing diverse suppliers in our upcoming limited time offer rollouts uh, in our Black-owned brewery program. And we're really excited to be launching a mentorship program for BIPOC students in the Portland area in Maine so that 
not only will we have uh, an amazing diverse team at our production facility in Saco, but we'll actually be able to help bring diversity and inclusiveness to the fishery itself by leading BIPOC students through the student licensing program and helping them become licensed commercial fishermen, which is very difficult to do right now. So I am so excited to be, you know, taking where we sort of left things off in, in early 2020 and to be able to say that we are emerging from this pandemic really a, a better company in our environmental impact, in our social impact. And, you know, that that is, uh, I think, what motivates so many of the folks on our team, that continuous improvement. Becoming a B Corp for Luke's was a really important step in taking the words we put out there into the world about what was important to us and putting an evidence-backed certification behind it because there are so many companies out there that understand that saying things about sustainability is important to consumers and they prioritize the saying before they prioritize the doing. Being a B Corp means that you have to do it, you have to prove it, you have to track it, and you have to be transparent about it in order to get that certification. So I think taking that extra step was really meaningful for us. And that that moment that you submit your first impact assessment and you think you have 80 points and you go through verification and you wind up with 45 and you realize, you know, that you haven't really got the evidence, you don't have the policies on paper, you're not tracking what you should be tracking, and then you battle your way back up to 80 by instituting those policies and changing your business for the better, that is really meaningful for a business that truly wants to have a positive impact. And then you get three years before you do it again. So for us to have gone through a pandemic and you know, hurt in so many ways and have come through that pandemic going from a score of 80 to a score of 104.5. That is the continuous improvement part of being a B Corp. It's seeing all those points that you didn't get the first time around and creating a roadmap for how you're going to get to a higher score. And, you know, if we hadn't done that, we may not have seen all the opportunities for decarbonization that we jumped on starting in 2018, 2019, we may not have seen the opportunities we had to manage our waste better and to think more circularly about our, our product life cycle. Um, we may not have seen opportunities that were there for us to be a better employer. So I think that really we are going to get to a point where it's not just the the few millennials and Gen Zers that are willing to make their purchasing decisions off of evidence-based positive impact, it's going to be the majority. And it's going to be something that becomes required for a company that wants to be successful. And, you know, we're excited to be a relatively early part of that movement and part of the B Corp movement so that we can help others kind of follow the same path and continue to get better. Adam Late, who is the VP of sales for Luke's, and I went down to Austin, Texas, and 
we were aware that we were going to receive uh, an award from Whole Foods and we didn't know what uh, the award was and it was our first award ceremony with Whole Foods. So huge customer, uh, great relationship for us, fun to go on a business trip down to, to Austin. Adam and I are also close friends. So we, 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 we get down there, uh, we meet with uh, the buyers at Whole Foods, grab a drink before the award ceremony. We, Adam and I had prepared a few remarks, just uh, folks that we wanted to thank internally and externally and um, a little bit about Luke's. So we, award ceremony was, was quite grand. And the way that it played out is there was probably about 15 awards and five of them were specific uh, purposes. Um, so like the award that we got called up for was a mission-driven organization um, or a purpose-driven organization. And then the other 10 awards were uh, like Northeast Vendor of the Year, Midwest Vendor of the Year, et cetera. So it was it was a little bit on the early of of the 15 awards that we got uh, presented. That, that wonderful award, Adam and I went up and graciously and eloquently received the award. And then uh, we went back to the table and, you know, it was party time. It was time to hang out with our friends at Whole Foods. And so we started drinking a little bit more and uh, probably skipped dinner. And hour and a half later, you know, the lights dim and, and they say something to the effect of now it's time to issue the vendor of the year award for, for, for perishable and for non-perishable foods. And so at that point in time, like I, I think I tapped Adam's knee and I'm like, I'm like, dude, you remember that big video that Whole Foods came up to do uh, and like spent three days out on boats and in the production facility? Like we haven't seen that yet. And both of us just looked at each other like, uh-oh. And sure enough, they start playing this. Uh, th they did an amazing job capturing the story and put a lot of time and effort into it. And they showed this amazing video and then the, the woman who ultimately reports directly into the CEO of Whole Foods, uh, gives us this amazing, warm uh, reintroduction to the stage. And the two of us at this point in time are like two sheets of the wind. So we go up there and like, we're like emotional and we're crying and none of the words will come out right. And they're slurring and, you know, we're certainly gracious uh, and appreciative. Like we were the first time around, but we were not efficient or eloquent. And, and we just, we looked ridiculous up there. So um, it was, uh, it was, it was all good in the end and it was a wonderful ceremony, but uh, we were a little bit surprised, a little bit snake bitten by uh, how the night played out. My name is Luke Holden. I'm the founder and CEO of Luke's Lobster. My name is Ben Conniff. I'm co-founder and chief innovation officer at Luke's Lobster. <laughs> Luke, as the founder and CEO of the company, 
he is the spiritual leader. Uh, he's the inspiration. He's the story behind the company. But he's also, in a very real way, driving the boat. He keeps the team aligned, going in the same direction. Um, he manages all of the uh, really difficult relationships that uh, others on the company might not have the wherewithal to handle. Um, but really, he's uh, he's the one at the helm, making sure that we're all pointed in the same direction and moving forward at all times. Ben Conniff, my co-founder, is the beacon of good at Luke's. Ben is, ben is the person that everybody on this team turns to and is constantly checking themselves and their ideas against. You know, Ben is uh, resolute in, in good. He always has been, and I suspect he always will be. So um, he's, much, he's much more uh, tactical uh, um, than, than just being the beacon of good, but that's, that, at the end of the day, like that is the, that's, that is the one thing that uh, can never be replicated. Everybody is, everybody looks at Ben and says, Ben is good and, and he wants to make more good. And, and he's been that guy since day one. No, 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 no. Hard pass. It's, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> Thank you guys so much again. It was really awesome. I can't wait to get working on this. This is fantastic. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. We know, obviously, from experience, you're going to do something great with it. So, Bye, guys. Take care. Oh, yeah.